Hello, my name is Jay Metha, and you're listening to The Voice Podcast. Hello. For all of you who listened to The Voice Podcast before, uh, the first thing you may notice is that I am not Spencer Thutt. Spencer started this podcast a few years ago on a whim, and it's grown into something that I absolutely fell in love with. Right up front, I want to thank Spencer for giving me this opportunity and for showing me the ropes. Uh, and I also want to thank all of you for continuing to support and listen to this podcast. I really enjoy putting it together. On this episode, I talked to Catherine Dima and Miss Richardson about the relationship between sports and global relations. I talked to Hunter Julo, Mr. Christian, and Mr. Lips about safe spaces and trigger warnings. And I talked to Natalie Nameron about Different Flowers, a movie coming out made by her sister and Pembroke alum Morgan Dameron. First up, sports. Anyone who knows me probably already knows that athletics are not exactly my specialty. One aspect of sports, however, that has always intrigued me is its unifying power and its reflection on the world as we know it. I sat down to talk to Catherine Dima and Miss Richardson about just that. According to Catherine Dima, the unifying power of sports draws from its universal accessibility. Even though people don't really speak many languages, especially here, people don't like to communicate with people from other countries and they don't really know a lot lot about necessarily a lot of politics, like economics or anything. Everyone can relate to sports. Even if you're not a sports person, you can feel excited about sports. And this idea that sports can bring us together is no doubt a thought that's crossed many of our minds. I saw, talked to Mr. Richardson about a very unique experience he's had watching sports bring people together on a more personal level. I played soccer my whole kind of youth, or I guess my whole, my whole life really as far as what I can remember, um, and, and was fortunate enough to play soccer in college. Um, and as my kind of playing career was winding down, um, and I was, I guess, 21, 22 years old, and I knew, I, I had felt that I had gotten a lot from the game and um, felt that I wanted to kind of give something back to the game. And that's when he found grassroots soccer. There was a, a mentor of mine in college, a guy named uh, Tommy Clark, who um, was a former soccer player at Dartmouth. Uh, went on to play professionally in Zimbabwe. And um, while he was in Zimbabwe, uh, some of his teammates had um, uh, contracted and eventually died of um, HIV and AIDS. And he put together this organization called Grassroots Soccer. Uh, and I met him while I was in college. Um, the home base for Grassroots Soccer was in, it was close to where my school was. And he had this intern program for college graduates to go over uh, and live in 
um, in either South Africa, Zambia, or Zimbabwe and work for the program. Um, and not do any of the teaching because most of the teaching was, felt was, was done by um, kind of locals. And the idea was uh, that local um, professional soccer players and coaches who had access to kids and had a lot of clout in their community uh, should be spreading information uh, and education about HIV. Uh, and there's a, a lot of stigma around talking about um, HIV and talking about sex in general um, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, at least at the time. And so the idea was that you get soccer as a hook, a way to bring kids in, right, to, some, to a forum, and then you have um, people with respect in the community talk to him about how it's contracted, what, can, what you can do if you contract it, uh, et cetera. But what is it about sports that makes it a hook for kids everywhere? According to Mr. Richardson, this is something that we all share. An essential kind of feature of what it means to be human is to play, right? To play games of some kind. Humans have always done this. And um, we play games because we enjoy playing games. We find joy in that experience. So bringing it back to a more global view, how does this manifest itself on a larger scale? Well, at the Olympics, we all saw two sides of this. We saw a North Korean and a South Korean gymnast take a selfie together, and we saw an Egyptian judo fighter refuse to shake hands with his Israeli opponent over political differences. I asked both Catherine Dima and Mr. Richardson about how common this actually is. The, the most obvious one that comes to mind immediately is um, kind of, there's, there's a very powerful rival, rivalry in the Scottish um, Premier League between Celtic and Rangers. Celtic is um, the team with predominantly Catholic supporters, Rangers team with predominantly, predominantly Protestant supporters. There's a long history of, of religious-based religious warfare, uh, or not warfare, but conflict in that country. Um, and that the rivalry between Celtic and Rangers, rather than more often than not kind of helping bridge the gap, has just been a, a symbol of the divisiveness, right? And they clash, the, you know, the supporters of teams clash at games, clash before and after games, right? Um, and it's been kind of a, a very violent, antagonistic relationship, right? Which certainly I don't think has helped um, really overcome any sort of tension. However, both pointed out examples of how sports has historically had a positive effect on global relations. When I think around World War II, when during Hitler's reign, the runner whose name is escaping me from America was not encouraged to go. He was the first black runner, I think, and he went to the Olympics and he, I think, won gold. And that kind of was a unifying moment for the world against Germany. It certainly was. And the runner she's talking about is Jesse Owens, who won four gold medals at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, making him the most successful athlete at the Games, and was said to have single-handedly crushed the Nazi myth of Aryan supremacy. Mr. Richardson even pointed out an example from World War I. You know, on Christmas Day, I think there's, it's an, it might be another legend, but I do think this actually happened, right? They, there was kind of a truce for the moment, and uh, a soccer game broke out between British and Germans, right? Um, and, you know, there's, there's all these legends about kind of, and again, it's 
the fact that a British and a German could each play, right, was like a, it's something they had in common, right? And so there's a potential for that kind of ability to see similar interests, shared interests versus differences. However, as much as sports may unify people, there is the question of how impactful all of this really is. It was 1896 is when this French guy brought the Olympics back with the hope that it would um, uh, bring kind of Europe together and like allow people to see. Like it, he hoped that it would be kind of this positive um, of reflection or exposition of kind of human potential and all these great athletic feats, right? Uh, and that was in 1896, and 20 years later, World War I breaks out, right? And so, like, it's not like the sport is having some sort of, like, you know, massively wonderful um, influence on world peace or anything, anything like that. I think on a micro level, right, in terms of me traveling to Zambia or, um, you know, you going somewhere internationally and being able to talk about something, like, or in terms of education, I think sport is immensely positive and powerful. And that's the thing about this whole topic that really intrigued me. Sometimes sports can really symbolize the building of bridges between peoples that, on a larger scale, have serious differences. But in terms of real impact, that change and those connections are much more visible on a human level. However, despite all of this, there are exceptions. Colin Kaepernick sparking or at least facilitating a debate on race in America. Jackie Robinson desegregating Major League Baseball almost 20 years before the Civil Rights Act was signed. And of course, the fact that even in a divided world and in a divided time, sports remains a common interest. Or as Mr. Richardson put it, As many people are soccer fans as are Christian or Muslim, right? And in terms of connecting people, that's as powerful as it gets. So, let's talk controversy. So, as many of you know, earlier this year, the University of Chicago sparked quite a lot of controversy when they sent a letter to their incoming freshmen saying, quote, Our commitment to academic freedom means that we do not support so-called trigger warnings. We do not cancel invited speakers because their topics might prove controversial. We do not condone the creation of intellectual safe spaces where individuals can retreat from ideas and perspectives at odds with their own. I sat down to talk to Hunter Julo, Mr. Christian, and Mr. Lips about what this topic means to them. First up, safe spaces. An intellectual safe space would be a place where people gather to have conversation and to confer on thoughts and ideas where there would be no adversary opinions. So everyone is agreeing. It's like having a liberals club. Mm -hmm. You're going to liberals club and everyone there is a liberal. 
And one can easily see how this may become a controversy. They think that people should be challenged by their ideas um, and that anyone should be able to say whatever they want in a classroom setting or in a common area of students. Like they don't think any, any space should be limited. Um, and so this challenges the idea of political correctness, um, where are we politically correct and where can we say whatever we want no matter who it offends. According to Mr. Christian, while there is a benefit to having safe spaces, they do undercut the value of a liberal arts education. College campuses, high school campuses for that matter, um, are built for an exchange of ideas. And that inherently means that people are going to disagree. In fact, if people aren't disagreeing um, with each other in terms of their interpretations and their viewpoints and perspectives, then, so then something, is, is, uh, something important is not happening. Um, a liberal education is, a liberal arts education is built on the exchange of ideas and the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the um, collaboration um, and conflict. And, and, and they both go hand in hand um, with each other. And so then if you try to erase that from college campuses, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. What you're, what you're doing is you're undercutting one of the main functions of the entire you know, education. However, according to Hunter, there is a value to safe spaces. So one of the, for, for my article, I had to read a bunch of material, uh, a article, different opinions on the UChicago piece. And one of the things that I read, which was the thing that by far stuck with me the most, was a letter from an alumni um, from UChicago. And she said that she wouldn't have gotten through college without safe spaces. And what one, she used as her safe space was the, she was a uh, black gay woman, and she said that she went to the LGBTQ um, safe, or LGBTQ house to speak freely and feel like she was being comforted in that community. And she says that that's why she could deal with being around this is these are my uh, her words, not mine, being around a lot of rich white males. And Mr. Christian and Hunter both made it very clear that there are different levels at which this debate can take place. There's a big difference between feeling uncomfortable and then also peeping, people being um, openly kind of like attacked and, f and feeling like it's a hostile environment, that they feel unsafe. That's, those are, those are, there's a wide gap between um, having an uncomfortable feeling because someone may disagree with you and also feeling like your safety is threatened. However, according to Mr. Christian, there is an arguable value to being uncomfortable. You want to have speakers come to campus that people don't, don't, all people don't agree with. Now, this may start to sound a little familiar. As many of you remember, uh, Edmund White and his partner Michael Carroll came to talk to Pembroke Hill students last year, and there was a lot of backlash. So we had um, an openly gay author and critic come to Pembroke Hill and talk about his work from, from you know, his, his writings. And he brought his, uh, his partner, and they were both on stage, both of them writers, and 
uh, were interviewed, and there was actually a very strong reaction from um, some students and some parents um, that we had brought somebody on campus and they had a lot of problems with what he stood for, what some of his, uh, his writings um, included, you know. And, and I would say that's exactly what we should be doing. Um, not, not to go out of our way to um, create inflammatory situations, but we should include lots of different viewpoints. Um, and that's a good thing. And now, trigger warnings. Now, trigger warnings are another one of those topics that can be misinterpreted. Trigger warnings are a prior cautionary phrase, um, usually given in the form of like trigger warning suicidal thoughts or trigger warning um, rape, something like that, that uh, would exploit material as having some type of explicit information outside of normal content. Now, I talked to Mr. Lips about the ways in which he feels that trigger warnings can be useful. I, mean, I think it can be a, an active consideration. So um, the only time that I can think that uh, the issue of trigger warnings or, or warnings in general comes into any of my classes is in AP Art History, uh, you know, we are looking at um, a lot of images of nude bodies in art, um, sometimes extraordinarily violent images or images with strong sexual content. And as a high school teacher, you know, I have to be realistic. Like, some of my students may not be entirely comfortable with that kind of imagery. They may not be all that exposed to that kind of imagery. So while I, I don't necessarily, I, I wouldn't claim to be extremely knowledgeable about the topic of trigger warnings, I do tend to provide at least a little warning uh, about that material uh, coming uh, up on uh, the next slide or you know later in the class period or so forth. Now, a lot of people who oppose trigger warnings cite the idea that life doesn't have trigger warnings and that students shouldn't be warned about graphic material. However, Hunter's own experience guides her in a different direction. I've sat in poetry slams with people and watched untriggered material trigger people. And it's, it's scary. Yeah. Uh, so I think, that, I think that's why I have that connection to it. Um, and I've seen people leave rooms because of trigger warnings and knowing it's the best thing for them. I think that there are certain forums where they're needed and certain forums where they're not needed. And according to Mr. Christian, understanding the difference between those forums could be the key to finding a middle ground in this debate. Trigger warnings, a trigger um, specifically comes, comes out of um, language associated with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and, and other uh, childhood traumas. And so trigger connotes that, 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 that there's something that is going to potentially trigger a very strong um, um, sense of panic, anxiety, um, which is a very, which is again, is a very different thing, and and is and is really um, um, probably involves a smaller segment of the population than if you're saying that a trigger is anything that makes someone feel uncomfortable or irritated or annoyed or um, a little, you know, a little uh, uneasy. 
And so, with regard to trigger warnings, how do we reconcile these opinions? According to Mr. Christian, it may be quite simple. I think that we can um, share with people, you know, like what we're going to be covering in the semester or what the, the speaker is going to be talking about. Um, but I don't know that we should put it, frame it in the language of a trigger warning, right? Yeah. I think that we should frame it in the language, okay, we have this um, uh, author who's coming on campus who's a, a noted, won, you know, major awards, and, um, and that he um, is a gay man who has, has written honestly about his life, and, um, and that's it. You know, like, like that, that can be part of just the announcement, right? But but it's not it's 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 not framed in, in the in the same in the way that the language that you're talking about because I think that that's a I think that's a mistake. I don't think there I don't think there's anything wrong if, if I if I go to teach a really explicit or some somewhat you know like uh, um, controversial kind of poem to say something beforehand you know if it has certain language in it and and and, and, and kind of prep students for that. Um, but in general, I want, I want students to meet the literature, you know, where, wherever, you know, it, it hits them. And, yeah. and I, think that, I think most of the students here, large percentage, um, are mature enough to do that. In the end, both trigger warnings and safe spaces call into question whether or not indelicate subjects and disagreements are valuable in a student's experience. My knee-jerk reaction um, is that... Uh, that life is uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, that like <laughs> that education and learning new ideas it comes with discomfort, and sometimes um, you can almost gauge uh, if learning is happening by the level of discomfort uh, or newness of ideas in the room. Uh, you know, but I think there is a difference between uh, making somebody uncomfortable by discussing ideas or points of view that they either disagree with or are unfamiliar with, there's a difference between that and attacking somebody else's beliefs with the intent of offending them or in some way tearing them down. Yeah. You know, I think we need to be able to uh, make each other uncomfortable with respect, <laughs> so to yeah, speak. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's about it. That's yeah. <laughs> now, anyone who knows the Damerans knows they have some high-achieving family mem members. Uh, Morgan Dameron, who graduated from Pembroke Hill School in 2007, is certainly no exception. After graduating from Pembroke Hill, she went to USC, graduating summa cum laude from their School of Cinematic Arts, widely considered the best in the country. Since then, she's created many short films and has worked at Bad Robot with J.J. Abrams on such blockbusters as Star Trek Into Darkness and Star Wars The Force Awakens. However, this past summer, she fulfilled a new dream, her very own feature film. I sat down to talk to her sister, Natalie, about that experience. So just briefly, for those who haven't read the article, um, and I suggest that everybody does, could you explain a bit about what you did this summer? So over the summer, I worked on my sister's 
movie. My sister's Morgan Dameron. She's a Pembroke Hill alum, and I worked on her movie called Different Flowers as the principal set photographer and videographer. What was that like? It was awesome. It was the coolest experience of my life. It was so fun. Um, so why did um, Morgan decide to film it in Kansas City? Um, well, she decided she wanted to come back to film her movie because she's been at college in L.A. and was working at a production company in L.A. for a while, so she decided she wanted to come back to her hometown, and she knew that Kansas City would be the perfect location for a film. When she wrote it, she had Kansas City in mind for all of the scenes and all of the just the small, quirky things that Kansas City could offer. Um, and so, uh, what is the movie about? This could be a plug. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, it's about two sisters, Millie and Emma, and Basically, they're complete opposites, and they just everything they do is opposite. They're not the same. And stressing <laughs> out. Okay, it's about two sisters, Millie and Emma, and it takes place on Millie's wedding day. And she decides that she can't marry this person anymore, so they run away together on this big road trip. They basically go to all of these landmarks and all of these fun places in Missouri and they go on this road trip to their grandma's farm and in doing so they find themselves. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah. Um, and so what about, and this again, this could be a question that has no answer, um, what about that story uh, spoke to the, loca to the location that you mm -hmm. chose for it? Basically it's a story about um, these two girls who find they have nothing they don't have a lot in common but they find that family and these places that they've grown up together with they mean everything to each other so basically Kansas City has a lot of character even though it's a growing city and all of these bustling things with the Royals and everything that's happening it still has a lot of character and it still has a lot of childhood memories for my sister and for my whole family and I'm sure for a lot of other people so I think that um, she wanted to bring this small town feel, and she knew that Kansas City would have that. All right. And has this idea been in, and again, may not be one that you know, has this idea been in the making for a long time? I know she was working as an assistant for J.J. Abrams, who's awesome. Um, like, has this been something that she's been wanting to make for a long time? Well, she's always known that she wanted to be a director, and so she knew that, so the, when the opportunities presented itself, she knew that, like the great amazing opportunities that Bad Robot gave her. She loved every second of her time there and she knew that she wanted to be a director herself. So just when the time was right, she knew that she had to make this leap of faith and basically wrote a screenplay and did it. It had happened and it was crazy. I, awesome. I, I really like that she came back to Kansas City. Cause <laughs> like, I mean, I'm no expert, but it, it's, it, to me it's like these kinds of things usually filled on a, filmed on a soundstage <laughs> in LA. Right. And because the story lends itself to sort of being lost but finding home and coming back to her home is really cool. Um, yeah. And there was definitely like a family atmosphere. There's a family atmosphere in Kansas City and there was a family atmosphere in the cast and crew and everyone just got along so well. Um, it was amazing. I also like how the whole Dameron clan... We were all involved. It was a full <laughs> family affair. Yeah, that was cool. Um, so, that's it. And it, well, well, actually one, one last thing. When and how can we watch it? Well, right now they're in post-production, and by the time this gets out, it might be already 
edited their rough, their first rough draft. Um, but they're gonna submit to festivals and see where that takes them, see how that goes, and then I'll keep you guys updated. Yeah. On whenever it, it. whenever it comes back, we'll have you back on the podcast to plug it. Perfect. Perfect. I would love to be here. Again. <laughs> uh, thank you. That yeah. is all. Yay. That's all for this episode. Big thanks to Catherine Dima, Mr. Richardson, Hunter Julo, Mr. Christian, Mr. Lips, and Natalie Dameron for speaking to me. Thanks to Spencer Thutt for helping me figure this all out and for providing the music for this podcast. And of course, thank you for listening.